This is TechHive's Clockwise podcast, episode 5 for the week of August 5th, 2013. Clockwise, four guests, four topics, 30 minutes. Welcome to Clockwise, the podcast with less talking than any other tech podcast guaranteed. I am your host, Jason Snell, and not sitting anywhere near me is my co-host, Dan Morin, who is on assignment. And by that, I mean we assigned him a vacation, and he is uh, he is having a vacation. So instead, I've got a table full of people, and I am going to introduce them to you clockwise because that's what we're like here. Sitting uh, to my left is Macworld editor Dan Miller. Hi, Dan. Howdy. So we're not Danless. We're just Morinless. No, we always have a Dan. It's, it's it's mandatory. It's a requirement. There there must be a Dan. Now, Dan, to your left is Caitlin McGarry, who's a staff writer for TechHive, mostly covering the social media beat. Hi, Caitlin. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. And to Caitlin's left, are you getting the geography now? We're swooping around this table. It's what what are you, associate editor? Um, associate editor of PC World. Alex yeah. Warrow. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so we've got representatives here from Macworld, TechHive, and PC World, which is how we like to do it with Clockwise to mix it up and get everybody on the staff on the show. And as always on Clockwise, now that we're five episodes in, I guess we can say as always, like it's a tradition, we try to do four topics with five minutes per topic plus a little bonus at the end and keep it under 30 minutes. So since I am the host and I've been abandoned by my co-host, Dan Morin, I will go first, and here's my topic. Uh, the Moto X, Mac people have a very hard time with that because we've been trained to say 10 every time we see an X anywhere, anywhere in the world. 10 rated movies, you name it. But um, it's the Moto X. It is, um, it is a new phone from Motorola, of course, owned by Google. And my, my thought here is that this is not a high-end phone. It's a cheaper phone. It doesn't have high-end specs. It loses all the specs battles to all the other Android phones. Meanwhile, we're hearing rumors about a new iPhone that might be coming down the way that would also be targeting a cheaper price point and a, a, a lower-end market maybe than the, the best stuff money could buy market. Um, and so my, my question for you guys is, you know, is cheap now – a, an important spec is are we seeing a change in the smartphone market here because um, it seems to me like especially on Android the race was always about who had the biggest specs who had the fastest latest you know Qualcomm Snapdragon processor and you know who had the, the most video uh, power and uh, with the Moto X and these rumors of this iPhone it's like it, it seems to me like there's a, a fundamental change going on with at least how people are being marketed to when it comes to buying smartphones. So I'm interested in what you guys think about this this trend. Dan? Well, I mean, looking at it particularly about Apple, um, about doing a cheap phone. You can do uh, that. You're the Macworld guy on this I'm podcast. I'm the guy. You know, um, I've seen people saying, oh, they've got to have a phone in the low end. And no, they don't have to do anything. Um, and, it, it, you know, they've never played in that. They've never played that game. I mean, they sure. don't have a $500 laptop. They just don't do right. that. So I don't. they're not compelled to do anything like that. If that said, if they can do something with the build quality that they demand, I mean, that's the one thing they do. They have to have good build quality. And if they can do something that's got good build quality at a lower price point, of course, they, I'm sure they're, they're thinking about doing it. And actually, I think it could be really cool to see what they do 
how you make a less expensive phone without sacrificing that. I think it'd be really interesting. Well, on the Moto X, I think one of the interesting things about it is it doesn't it doesn't look or feel cheap. It no. just doesn't have the latest internals and is has a little bit lower price. So it's it's just a it's a change there. And and, and that's the other interesting thing is that Apple also, on the other hand, never plays the specs war. I mean, they don't say you know they just don't play that game either. And so right. I, I right. that's what reminded me of Apple in the Moto X announcement is yeah. that it was sort of like yeah. Processor speed, whatever. No, it's about it's about subjective experience more than anything else. Caitlin, what do you think? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think you know the average person isn't looking to see the most powerful processor. That's not how they're picking their phone. They want a, a good quality phone, like the Moto X seems to be. They want a great looking design. Obviously, the iPhone has always had that. Um, you know, they're looking at a combination of factors. Does their carrier subsidy, you know, make it worth buying? Um, does their carrier even have that phone? They're, you know, most people aren't looking to buy out of contract um, unless they're super into tech and they're into having the latest phone, in which case they'll spend whatever it costs to have that phone. Um, but I think, you know, the average consumer, they're just looking at a variety of factors and price is one of them. Another factor is apps. I mean, we've been saying this for years, but it's all about the apps. And until you mentioned that the internals of the Moto X were, you know, not premium and it came at a not premium price point, I had no idea. Like, I I don't care about what's inside the phone. I don't care. It feels good in the hand, and it has some of the apps I want. I'm an iPhone user, so it doesn't have all the apps I want, but it has some of them. That's all I care about. There was an article on, um, I think, CNET that declared this the un-iPhone. And and it's funny because... Um, it seems to me to be a very Apple-like product, which is it doesn't matter if it's the biggest specs. We're not fighting a specs game. We want it to feel good. We want people to to uh, to uh, want to buy it and want to hold it in their hand. And also, I think um, have a phone that is not two ninety nine. That isn't you know two years ago's phone. It's a new phone for the cheaper price instead of it being a hand-me-down, which if the Apple rumors are true, might be a similar thing. Instead of selling old phones for cheap, they've got a nice new phone that's just not at the end of the at the far end of the of the processor curve, and maybe that doesn't matter. It, it'll be really interesting to see. Well, thank you for your feedback. And Dan, you're up. It's your turn. All right. Well, um, next week, uh, we're going to see the debut, the opening of the Steve Jobs movie. I think it's, what it's called. Uh, Jobs. Jobs. <laughs> Jobs. All capital letters. Uh, with Ashton Kutcher. And, you know, we've been talking about it here in the office and, and, you know, preparing some coverage for it and stuff. And I've been feeling kind of guilty because I am completely uninterested <laughs> in this movie. I have no interest in seeing it. It just It's just not something I want to see. I read the Walter Isaacson book. I've read stuff about Steve Jobs in the past. You know, I, I think I have a sense of who this guy is and, and where he came from and why he did what he did. And I just don't see Ashton Kutcher adding a whole lot to that. Hmm. Um, but it also feeds into sort of the whole funny thing that goes on in the Apple market, which is, you know, he's this – obviously, he's this figure of uh, great interest to a lot of people. And so I'm sure it's going to be a very popular movie. But I just wanted to get a sense of people here. Uh, you know, does this movie matter to you? I, I haven't followed it much. Maybe you can fill me in. Uh, is this is this a sanctioned biopic? Is no. there a lot of research involved? No, it, and it's not uh, from the Isaacson book. This is no. a an unauthorized, uh, you know, other, you know, rogue uh, first out the door. And biopic. It's, yeah, because it's actually one of two. There's another one coming out that, that I think Aaron Aaron Sorkin's Sorkin, writing the screenplay, and that did, one is based on the Isaacson book. Who did the Social Network? And oh, and I, that one I'm interested in because it's Aaron Sorkin. One, yeah, and based on Walter Isaacson's book. Yeah, it just, it just sounds like uh, it sounds like they're trying to cash in 
uh, on a lot of public interest in, in Steve Jobs and who he was and what he thought. And uh, I find that kind of uh, distasteful and uninteresting. I had no interest in seeing it, um, but I don't know. Maybe it'll be good. Mm. <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm sensing a lot of ambivalence. Caitlin? Yeah, um, I mean, Steve Jobs has a really obviously compelling story that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but the talent behind this particular movie is not... Not very interesting to me. I am interested in the the Aaron Sorkin uh, film version. Maybe that'll be a little more interesting. But I mean, this isn't Steve's Steve Jobs' life as told by Martin Scorsese, which that I would line up at midnight for. Sure, that scene sure. where Steve Jobs takes a baseball bat and smashes people's heads in on the Mac team is. Not uh, it, to w- be it would add some more interest. It would, I, Steve Jobs' life probably wasn't violent enough for Scorsese to take on. But. <laughs> yeah. Or but it was would it? be a good movie. <laughs> it would be a great movie. You did The Aviator about Howard Hughes. It could be very, very exactly. interesting. So it, yeah. sounds, it sounds like you guys are saying that, that um, what interests you more is not the subject matter, but the artist who's trying to interpret the subject matter. And I, I mean, I've seen it. I, you know, and we'll have more on it. I'm going to forward promote more on it on the MacWorld podcast. I think next week when the movie is coming out, it it's. <sighs> The guy is really hard to get your your uh, your hands around, right? It's just like who is this guy and how to explain him. And the movie, uh, the Isaacson books takes a thousand pages or whatever and can't really get get put their finger on it. The movie is the same way. What I think is really funny is that this is actually a much better movie about Apple than it is about Steve Jobs. And the Apple stuff is great; it, it's a lot of fun. Um, but when they start to try and say, well, "No, no, what is it? What makes him tick?" Um, that part, that's like pop psychology or you're hitting the, the, you know, the famous notes of things that he did that everybody knows that he did. And, they, you know, he's spinning around in the field having a, a, an acid trip. And it just kind of is, I don't know, it just kind of falls apart. And, and I agree with Alex that um, it does have – it does feel a little distasteful. I, when I going, – going into it, I was really concerned that it was going to be really bad. And it's not. It's it's a competently produced. These people have an interesting take on the subject. It's not a Lifetime movie. It's, you know, uh, Kutcher does a, does a pretty good job of being Steve Jobs in a lot of ways. He inhabits that part in a, a very difficult, I think, part for anybody to try and play. Um, and the directors made a, a choice about what story they wanted to tell and said there are probably 50 more movies you could tell about different parts of Steve Jobs' life. That all said, I think the most interesting stuff to me was about him being a guy who got these people working for him to make these products that, you know, this ragtag bunch of, of uh, rejects essentially who built the Apple II and then built the Mac. That's, that stuff was great. Um, it's the stuff about the guy and it's the, oh, everybody's curious about him. He's a celebrity and he just died and now there's a movie about him. I suspect that's what people are going to want to see if they want to go see this movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're going to be satisfied because I think the computer stuff is actually much more interesting than the than the human stuff because they, they don't know what to say about the guy. He's like, I don't know. He did this stuff. Why did he do it? Who knows? Well, I think the computer stuff is the human part. Like it's the part where he leaves that. It's what he cared about. Yeah, it's what he most. and goes and works on and then has the triumphant return. Like that's what yeah. I want to see. Yeah, although in that in that in this movie, not to give too much away, the part where he leaves Apple and then comes back is essentially a dissolve to ten mm. years later, and that's one of those things that they said, "Yeah, that's a whole other movie somebody could make." That's the movie I want to see. Uh, well, Shots. you're gonna have to wait. Maybe Aaron Sorkin will help you more. Yeah. <laughs> I will say just one thing: the the feedback I've heard from some people who are actually at Apple early on and saw the movie, they said it was actually they really liked it. So, like you said, it does get some of the early Apple yeah. stuff. Apparently, it does get that right. And apparently it was actually shot in the garage. 
where they founded Apple. It was shot in Steve Jobs' childhood home, which is kind of wacky. So we'll have more in an interview, actually, with a director that I did. We will have much uh, more next week. On the Macworld podcast, so you can go over there for that. Caitlin, you're up. What's your topic? So one of the the biggest pieces of news this week was uh, Amazon's Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post, $250 million, seemingly came out of nowhere. Um, So I'm really interested in what he plans to do with this. This is not, you know, Amazon buying Washington Post. It's this, you know, one guy. Billionaire buys newspaper with pocket change. Yes, it's very, very Citizen Kane. Um, (laughs) So... You know, it's it's going to be interesting to see if he if he lets it operate independently with, you know, very hands-off approach or if he really tackles its digital strategy, improves the website, figures out how to make some money off newspapers, which, you know, I, I have a newspaper background and that's it's it's very difficult right now. So I'm, I'm curious if it sparks a trend of billionaires buying newspapers and, and helping them out and and, you know, if print has a future. I hope so. I, I mean, I'm totally, I understand there's some concern over it, and he's taking the company private, I think, whereas before it was public, but I could be totally wrong about that. I think that's right. Uh, I think that's right. But someone's got to. And, you know, it's it's certainly not uncommon to have rich uh, patronage to, to to promote and really, I mean, that's, that's where newspapers were founded, right, it was by rich guys who wanted to promote the Democratic line or the Republican line or whatever. So uh, I hope that uh, more people do this. Like, I, I'm I'm totally on board to see what Bezos does. So I think it's a fantastic turn of events. Covering uh, covering the news is is vitally important. Whether we can argue about, like, are newspapers relevant and, and to whom they're relevant and whether the web is better and how, how that news gets out there. But covering independently what's happening and letting uh, people – uh, know what's going on in their communities is a fundamental part of being in a democracy. And the, the challenge has been that it, the the only way that we have to handle it is in profit-making enterprises. And that wasn't a problem when the financials of newspapering were so amazing, which yeah. they were for so long. So now the question is, what do you do? And it's a public good, but you can't have the government funded because then the first time you criticize the government, their funding is going to get cut, right? So in some ways, a billionaire with pocket change um, it, it serves two purposes. Maybe in the end, there's money that people who've got a lot of money put aside in various communities to set up nonprofits or to set up slightly profitable businesses that are basically doing it for the public good but are independent. That would be great if we could get there. And then I love the fact that it's Jeff Bezos because he's got the chance to uh, – because he has a tech background and he really does think outside the box with so much of what you see at Amazon that – I get the feeling that with that and his money, his essentially unlimited money, um, you know, he's he's not going to be willing to lose billions of dollars on on this thing. But he'll let them experiment, I think, and try to figure out, a, you know, a way for news organizations to make it in the future. And that's exciting. It would be sad if the way that you make it is by finding a billionaire to fund you. But, um, you know, hopefully the bil- this billionaire will fund the discovery of what the news organization of the 21st century that's self-sustainable will be like. So I'm excited about it uh, just for that, that, you know, it's gotten so desperate that you really, you know, the news business almost needs a patron, at least at the moment. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting also because, you know, people like Warren Buffett, I mean, he's been investing in local papers for years. I mean, there are smart people who think there's a business here. What that business is, we don't know. And and clearly, people, the traditional newspaper owners haven't been able to figure it out. So I'd say the more new people we can get in there, the better, because there's just more new ideas. Uh, I did think it was funny. I saw this story in the Wall Street Journal about this, and, and 
their lead was basically, uh, you know, here's your story. A young man graduates from Ivy League College, works in the financial industry, makes a bunch of money, and then buys the Washington Post, which describes not only Jeff Bezos, um, but also the guy, Eugene Meyer, who bought the Washington Post in the 1930s <laughs> and who's the patriarch like, of what the we now think of as the, the Graham family. family. Yeah. yeah. So, it, you know, these things go in cycles. I mean, at that point, the Washington Post was almost bankrupt. I mean, and he brought it back to great profitability. I mean, so these things go up and down. I've never thought that the newspapers were on a, a straight line uh, into the ground. I didn't never thought that they were going to die completely. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's going to happen. But they're going to have to – they're still in the process of morphing. I mean, nobody's figured it out. So I think they'll survive in a very different form. And I think Jeff Bezos, I mean, like you said, he thinks outside the box. He's a very creative, smart guy. And he doesn't need to make a profit. He probably wants to make a profit, but he doesn't need to. Yeah. I saw somewhere term. that the amount that he paid for the Washington Post is about as much as his stock goes up and down in a Fluctuates given day. Fluctuates yeah. in a day. Yeah. yeah. So. I don't think what's interesting here is that a, a billionaire is buying a newspaper. I mean, uh, as you said, that's common. Story happens. of the yeah. medium. That's how newspapers function for decades. But the, the tech angle here is very interesting. Um, and if he can make the Washington Post digital strategy better or, you know, present some sort of model for how newspapers should should make money going forward, then I think that'll take a lot of pressure off the reporters at the Post who are just trying to do their jobs and tell really great local stories. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're saying is that Billionaire Buys Newspaper is basically Dog Bites Man. Yes, All right, fair enough. (laughs) Just using a newspaperism there. Alex, it's your turn. I feel like such a nerd. Today I brought uh, a topic about passwords. So I think yesterday... Password one. That's the one I use. Password one. It's an excellent choice. <laughs> last pass is also great, but if you No, use... no. I mean the literal password is oh. capital P, password one. What's, what could go wrong? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, no, that's, that's a great choice. Uh, do you use it for, for all your services? Um, why, why wouldn't you? Why, right. you know, why wouldn't you just use one low security password? Anyway, I'm sorry to get you no, off not track. At all. As Jason Snell's accounts are being drained. Yes, that's speak. right. Well, I mean... <laughs> But the value of having one password is that you don't have to worry about using something like Chrome to save all your different passwords. So you never have to remember them, right? Right. I mean, Except, but that's the, that's the idea of password saving, right? Is, right. The, is that you can do, you could do different passwords, never reuse them, and then you're totally secure because your browser just remembers your passwords yeah, exactly. and you're set. So, so it turns out that, uh, and this has been a, a problem with Chrome for a while, is that if you use Chrome and you use it to save your passwords, it's very easy to look at those passwords in clear text for anyone who looks at your browser. There's a simple URL you can type into Chrome and it'll show you every password that's been saved for every single website. That's Chrome colon slash slash settings slash passwords. Yeah. Boom. Passwords. Uh, we have a story about it on PC World. And uh, what's so interesting about this is that, uh, you know, it's a very clear vulnerability for anyone who sits down to borrow your computer. If it's already logged in, all they have to do is open Chrome and type this in and they can see all your passwords for Twitter and your bank and Facebook and anything else. Now, the developer who found this or kind of publicized it, uh, Elliot Kemper, I think, uh, got a response from Google who said, well, you know, we're not going to change this. Because <laughs> because to, to actually to warn anyone that their passwords are in clear text or to require a master password to see this list, it's just giving you a false sense of security. And I was curious to know if you guys agree or not. Wow. You know, I was just um, – I've been using – Mavericks, the new version of OS X, and it's got a password-saving feature in Safari. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I think the, your, the PC World story says that, that to see the passwords, you have to enter in a password in Safari, uh, unlike in Chrome. But, but uh, the problem is if you're logged in, you can auto-log into all of those things. So there are, there are different levels of security here. I kind of felt like if you have a timeout, one password or last pass or things like that, they usually have a timeout that if you haven't entered in the password in five minutes, you have to enter the password in again to get it, which I think is I think is good, solid security. That's what you want is I don't want to have to literally like walk away with my computer or lock it every time I step away for a second because that's, you know, I, I that's kind of a lot, asking a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and making it easy for people to just click. I, yeah, I think it's a problem. I think Chrome, I, I don't really know why they're thinking. It made me go into that password and or that uh, URL and, and click all of them off and get rid of all my Chrome passwords because right. I don't want, I just don't, I don't want that. Especially for you know, super super important passwords where people are going to log into my Twitter account and say crazy things. <laughs> what do you guys think? Um, I you know I, I thought it was a little odd that he said that that you know requiring a password to see those passwords was just theater. I that's how all password managers work. You enter a password, and then you can see your passwords. This right. is not that, and it doesn't seem like it's that hard to implement. If so, it's theater, it's theater because they're not storing them securely, which they should be, right? Well, yeah, or at, yeah, at least you know, at least require a password to be able to see them or change them. I mean, that it just doesn't seem that difficult to me to sure. do. Yeah, I think everyone agrees that this is weird and they should fix it. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know why they would stand by that. I mean, everyone, everyone wants to keep their passwords secure. Otherwise, they're not going to use Chrome anymore. I mean, that made me think twice about. It. So here, uh, and, and obviously, I, I'm just summing up a very complicated response. But Google has so far come out and said that. You know, we're not going to put any of that like surface level protection in. We're not going to require a master password. We're not going to pretend to encrypt your passwords because if someone has local access to your PC and can get into your account, they can they can get at that stuff. They just have to use the right programs, the right scripts, the right know how to get in there and get it. I I kind of agree. And what I find so fascinating is that the blog post about this says there's two kinds of people: technical and non-technical. And that's the technical person's response: is like use one password or just give up your security. But I think there's a middle ground, and I think that you said it was it was uh, you know like Google says it's theater to to put up the pretension of a master password, but like that's a significant deterrent. Like it won't stop a master cracker, but it will right. stop your neighbor. Right. What's the most likely scenario that the master cracker is going to get access to your your laptop while it's open and unlocked and run and download software to crack your your lightly encrypted passwords, or that your your next door neighbor in the in a cubicle is going to come over and read your email? I right. think the the second is far more likely, and that's what they should be protecting against. And that you know that theater may be enough in a lot of those cases. Yeah, and right. it seems trivial to implement. So I hope. Google uh, takes uh, proactive steps to do that. Sees the error of its ways. Yeah, yeah. Does everybody here use a password, uh, a password keeping utility? I don't. Oh, Alex, I'm the worst. I know. Uh, do you have different passwords, or do you just have like one password you use everywhere? So this is kind of nerdy. Alex, I, your I, I wrote a story a while and, ago. And what is that password? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually use a, a passphrase algorithm. So in my head, I have a system of how I oh. write passphrases based on what the website is and like time of day and stuff. And so I'm constantly changing my passwords and making new ones based upon uh, a set of rules that only I know. That's not bad. That's so it's intense. it's not as good as one pass, but it's it's better than just using password one. Yeah, one two three test, right? Yeah. All of that. Yeah, yeah. I use I use one password and and now use their little password generator. And every now and then I get somewhere and I have to look it up on 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 my iPhone in mm-hmm. the app to to retype it in because I don't have it with me. But 
you know, I think it's worth the inconvenience because otherwise if they crack your, your password in one place, then they, every place you use it is vulnerable. So that's scary. That's yeah, scary. no, use, use one password. It's great. I think the solution is just get rid of passwords altogether. Yeah, but they're replace just, them with what? They're fingerprints. Just, they're just terrible. Passwords are like democracy. It's the it's it's not a perfect system, but, <laughs> but it's, it's the, the best, best one yet we devised. Have. Yeah, yeah. No. They, I mean they're going to get the biometrics at some point, and that'll be great. Um, but yeah, passwords are a pain. Agreed. <laughs> All right. Well, we solved that. <laughs> uh, everybody, go change your passwords immediately. All right. It's time for our bonus question, uh, the fifth question in the four question podcast. I try to be a little bit off, off topic. This is slightly tech related, but I'm curious if you guys have uh, a serious or a wacky answer to this, which is what part of the tech world do you think deserves its own TV show? And um, you don't have to pitch me on the TV show, but I'm just – is there some part of the tech world that you've seen that you think might be interesting uh, seen on TV? And it could be a reality show or a drama or a comedy or some other – a talk show. I don't really know. I'm just curious. Is there something in 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 the tech world that, that might deserve it? I'll go first I, I, um, because you guys are sitting here scratching your heads. Um, I think I would love to see a, a sitcom uh, about – a a bunch of people who have worked very hard building a company only to have it acquired and basically torn into little bits like happens so often in Silicon Valley where you get your beautiful thing that you've created and you get some money, which is great, but you get to also preside over the destruction of the thing you've built. And I think that would be a great dark comedy about these these people who are a little more um, – this is my pitch, by the way – who are a little, a little more out there um, being integrated into the collective of uh, a Google or something like that. I think that would be a fun uh, dark comedy. So that's my – that's that. Acquisitions, cruel acquisitions, would be what I would like to see. Dan, I'd watch that. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, with caveat that I'm completely oblivious to what's on television these days. So this might already it's exist. your imaginary, my television. imaginary television. Um, I think they, I, if they haven't already done it, I think they should do sort of a Dallas style melodrama called Los Altos about uh, Silicon Valley and its, oh man, and its gazillionaires and oh, no. and all the different generations of people who are down there. You know, you've got the old crusty people who started, you know, the the original Hewlett Packards and Intels and such, and then you've got the the middle generation of CEOs out there now, and then you got the young up-and-comers and their clashes and their romances and everything else. That's I think, great. I think it would be great. That's very very there, dramatic. There could, be a, there could be like a hacker subplot or something. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I'm envisioning sort of like a Parks and Rec-style comedy about a startup that is based on the most ridiculous, outlandish oh. idea for a startup. And their trials and tribulations, trying to get funding, uh, the the behind the scenes programming, engineering part. Um, I just think I think it's ripe for comedy because I mean some of it actually exists and it's it's pretty ridiculous. Totally. Does this have to be a TV show? Could it be any kind of media? Oh, go ahead. I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 you can you can completely okay. No, well, subvert it. Go ahead. I can make it a TV show. I just I hate TV shows that never end. So it's a British TV show. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. It's so like six episodes and it's done. Yeah. One of the things I find most fascinating about this line of work, uh, tech writing and and tech media, is the relationship between uh, writers and PR people. So I would love to see like kind of an odd couple series where you have, you know, through some crazy chain of events, like there's a uh, a PR representative and a tech writer or a tech editor or a tech blogger who have to live together in some crazy, like ridiculously high rent San Francisco apartment that looks amazing. But of course, neither one of them makes any money. And it would be like kind of a kind of a romantic comedy, I think, you know, maybe a sitcom era, kind of a one camera show. Huh. And uh, 
I think I'd call it like embargoed or something. I don't know. I, I think the dynamic would be better. See, I'm going to give you some studio notes. Sure. If the PR person was essentially the uh, had the upper hand in the relationship because they were making more money okay. and could therefore afford the apartment, whereas the tech writer was making almost nothing and that that was always a source of friction in their relationship. Sure. I'm just, you know, take that back and, and workshop it a little bit. It's very true to real life, though. And then, Well, that's what yeah. I was thinking is mm. the writer's got to be poor. I think maybe only journalists would be interested in watching that show. But what if it was written by Aaron British Journalists. British yeah. journalists. The British Aaron Sorkin created right. the show. That's great. I was going to say that's that's like a little bit like a uh, the thick of it or something like that yeah. or, or, or uh, House of Cards or one of those British shows that was about kind of insider machinations and all of that except it would just be tech writers and PR people. And <laughs> that could actually be great, Alex. I'm going to consider that for my British uh, TV network that I'm starting. It's all yours. Take yes. it. Um, okay. That's, that's cool. I think we've solved – so let's see what we've solved here. We've solved um, the problem of journalism, the problem of passwords, whether you should see the Steve Jobs movie, we've bought your next phone for you, and we've just invented four huge hit TV shows. I think that's good enough for 30 minutes, don't you? I'm exhausted. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it makes me tired just thinking about it. And before we go, one more thing. I'd like to introduce to you former uh, Clockwise panelist Jason Cross to tell you about our other Tech Hive podcast. Jason? Hey, Clockwise listeners. Jason Cross here to tell you about Tech Hive's Play This podcast. If you like Clockwise because it's about half an hour long and doesn't waste your time, you're going to like Play This as well. We spend about half an hour every week talking about the whole world of digital entertainment. That's streaming TV and movies and music and, of course, video games. That's the Tech Hive Play This podcast. Look for it wherever fine podcasts are sold. All right. Well, We have been watching the clock. We know that we're coming up on 30 minutes. We are literally out of time. I would normally thank Dan Morin here, but he's not here, so I'll thank Dan Miller and Caitlin McGarry and Alex Waro and thank everybody for listening out there. Um, Until next time from all of us here at Clockwise, watch what you say and keep watching the clock. Goodbye.